get in the zone. Don't be lazy. Don't blow it off. Like every single stroke counts. And, you know, just showing up every day, even if you're tired, even if you don't feel like it, some of my best sprint times came on a day where I showed up and was feeling terrible. Welcome to the One Hour Intern. I'm your host, Will Brigger. On this week's episode of One Hour Intern, I learned from New York Times reporter and author, Kate Kelly. Kate explains her writing process, attending an all-girls school, and the worldliness she received from her parents and more. Kate, thank you for joining us today. I'm looking forward to our discussion. Me too, William. Thanks so much for inviting me. Let's start with a little context to help our readers understand more about you. Recently, you published The Education of Brett Kavanaugh. Can you tell us a little bit about your writing process? Definitely. So the writing process for me is always preceded by the reporting process. And the reporting process, I'm one of these people who likes to err on the side. If I have 10 hours to do a story, I'll spend nine of them reporting and one of them actually writing, sometimes to the chagrin of my editors who feel like maybe I'm too rushed at the very end of it. But the reporting process really is about taking a question or an assignment, in this case, uh, Justice Kavanaugh, and thinking about his educational years, his career, and then, of course, the confirmation process of 2018, and thinking about what do we know? What's on the record already from other reporters, from work that maybe I've done myself, from other things I may have read or seen, from you know watching him on television, watching hearings or testimony? What do we know about this person or whatever the topic is, this topic? And what do we need to know? So again, it was, we want to know much more about his educational years. We want to know much more about his early influences and how he decided to pursue this profession, what his education was like in, in terms of the classes he took, the sports he played. How did he end up at Yale College? How did he end up at Yale Law School? Was he always a Republican? And then, of course, what was his social life? What were his interactions with women? What role did alcohol play? And what do we know about these accusations that were made against him and the people who made them? And what can we discern further about what may have happened there back in that era, which in, in this case was the early 80s, as well as in 2018 when all of these things came up yet again? So in other words, what do we know already? What do we need to know? And how can we achieve that? And that, of course, is everything from additional reading to phone calls to meeting people in person. Sometimes that requires travel. And, you know, you're recording conversations, you're taking handwritten notes, you're typing notes. If you're on the phone, maybe you're doing all sorts of things. You're looking at social media. And then in the end of it, gathering all of this, having a really good outline. In this case, my partner, Robin Pogrebin, and I, who I wrote the book with, we had written a proposal for our book that I forget, I want to say it was 10 to 15 pages. And then we wrote an outline just specifically about the anatomy of the book and what the order of topics and issues was going to be. And we embellished that as we went along down to the scene and kind of the sub scene. And then we had a very clear roadmap for writing because to me, writing needs to be sort of methodical and planned in that way. Otherwise, I don't know how long to write. I don't know what I'm trying to achieve with a particular paragraph or a page, and I don't know what it's in the service of. So I tend to be pretty procedural about what I'm writing as a nonfiction writer and reporter. On, a, on another note of kind of more about the, the publishing of your book, it's an interesting topic, and it's 
little bit controversial. How do you deal with other people's opinions and kind of criticism that you get from your writing? That's a great question. So number one, I don't take it personally, even though in this case, there have been some personal attacks. There have been some people that said, you know, on Twitter, I hate you so much, Kate Kelly, or words to that effect. These people don't know me. They just don't like what I've written, or, or perhaps they haven't even read what I've written. They don't like what they're hearing about what I've written. It's pretty rare that the, the criticism is personal. It's often about your work product or maybe your employer or maybe, you know, something to do with what you're doing that concerns people or bothers them or they have preconceived notions about rather than you as a human being. So that's number one is to realize that a lot of this, the vast majority of it is about the work. And also to say, once you kind of step aside from that personal reaction to it and you think of it as a professional matter to say, look, People are absolutely entitled to their opinions. We have a First Amendment in this country. We have the right to free speech. That includes criticizing what I've written or me as a professional. That includes having a reaction to work like this that tends to stir things up and be very emotional for people. I get that. And Robin and I knew when we endeavored to write this that it would stir things up and there were be, would be people rather who were not pleased about it. So, you know, that's the first thing. And then the second thing is just, it's something that far precedes the reactions to the work once the work is done, because an article for the New York Times, depending on what it is, could take a few hours or it could take a few months. Or, you know, in the case of my colleagues who wrote about the president's taxes, I believe it took a year and a half. So sometimes reporting is a really long game. And during the process of it, Every day, every week, you're trying to be very conscientious and saying, is my process reasonable? Am I covering all the bases I need to cover? Am I treating people with fairness and objectivity? And if you do that day after day and week after week, and by the way, if you ever feel you haven't done it, you can address that too. You can get more information. You can make another phone call. You can call somebody and say, hey, I, I didn't love how our conversation went. I, I'm sorry about this. Or, you know, can I get some more information on that? There's always that opportunity. So if you're doing that day in and day out, and you can feel good about your process, then by the time you get to sort of the outcome and the final written product, which, especially for something that is sensitive, has typically gone through many edits and many conversations with colleagues and editors and superiors, you can feel pretty comfortable that what you're doing is a legitimate and high quality piece of work. And if people don't like it, that's understandable and that might be fair, but you don't have to agree and you don't have to take it as a round dismissal of everything you've done. So you would say that confidence is kind of the backbone of your writing in a sense. It's how you make your work the best because you just really feel confident in it. And that's the only time you publish it when you feel confident in it. I think that's right. I mean, once in a while, there are stories where you don't know a lot. I mean, you know that there was a, a fire at, I'm making this up, but you know, 6th and High Street, and you run over there and the, the building's burning and you talk to a fireman, you talk to a few neighbors and you write the story and that's what you know. And you're confident because you were there, you saw the fire burning, you interviewed those people, you got their names, you took your notes, you wrote your story. So that's something where you may not know the origin of the fire, you may not know if it was arson. You may not know if it was faulty electrical wiring. You may not know if the city followed uh, the steps that they needed to in responding to the fire. But you know what you saw, and you put that down, and you can have confidence in that. And I think confidence is an earned thing. It's what I was saying a minute ago about kind of the day in and the day out, just showing up, 
knowing that or making every possible effort to come at it with fairness and with objectivity, treating people really decently, knowing that people are entitled to a whole range of opinions, and knowing that every story and really every interview should start with a pretty clean slate. I once heard our foreign editor say that a big mistake that some people make when they go into foreign correspondence from doing something else is they go to a foreign country and they assume that they can cover that country exactly as they would cover not just the United States, but their own hometown. That the filter through which we need to evaluate everyone in that foreign country is the filter that I would have, for example, as a native of Washington, D.C. And that doesn't apply when you're a stranger in a strange land. You need to approach people and situations with as much of a tabula rasa as you can. And I've found that my own personal opinions about things have really faded to where, sure, I, I have a body of knowledge about something, and, and sometimes I have a leaning or a gut or an informed perspective on things. I mean, of course I do. But I realize how much I don't know about almost every topic. And it's interesting. I, I just have sort of, my mind's been cleared of a lot of preconceived notions the longer that I've been in this business. With regard to that idea, do you have any other major takeaways that you've gotten from your work that are kind of relevant to your life as a parent when you were a kid or kind of stuff that you feel should be passed on to other journalists? Oh, man, that's a really good question. Well, let me answer the parent piece, and then you can follow up if you want with other aspects of it. I mean, so I have four children, and I have sort of a a mental list of things that I would encourage them all to do. Obviously, they're not going to do what I say necessarily, but they cannot. They can take the advice if they want it. Just, Just for fun, I'll name two of them. One is... I think all the kids should take four years of math, and I can explain why. And the other is, I think it's great to do a team sport. But as a journalist, one way of thinking about this for me is this notion I was just talking about, like to to kind of rid yourself of preconceived notions. I tell the kids when they're learning a new concept in school, for example, my fifth grader is learning some history, some social studies, reading, you know, increasingly sophisticated texts, even though he's pretty young. And he'll come home and say, oh, I just learned this thing. And it's really terrible how this happens and terrible how all, this people, all these people do this thing. And then when current events come up, he might jump to a conclusion and say, this, this or that thing is terrible. It's just like I was learning in school. And oftentimes he's being really insightful and he's right. But I sort of enjoy, even though it may drive him crazy, playing devil's advocate and saying to him, well, how do you know that's the case here? Or how can you assume it's that kind of behavior? You know, what about this other perspective on it? I mean, at one point I was trying to describe the difference between big government and small government and the idea of government spending on something like schools and a philosophy of, you know, should we cover a lot of tuition costs? Should we pay for a lot of things in schools and therefore pay higher taxes? Or should we pay lower taxes and maybe let people start their own schools and, you know, more private individuals fund schools? And should we leave it more up to the markets? And and kids kind of have strong reactions to things sometimes based on their own worldview, but it's fun and interesting to sort of push back on them and like try to cajole them into being a reporter and not just taking the easy answer. So that's one example. On a more foundational level, though, I came to the New York Times about three years ago. I started in January of 2017, and I came to it after having worked at the Wall Street Journal for a long time, like nine plus years, and then working at CNBC as an on-air reporter for about six and a half years. And I enjoyed both. I enjoyed CNBC. I had great colleagues and the TV business can be a lot of fun and really exciting and kind of 
urgent in a way that other media forums are not always. But I left that and I joined the Times because I really wanted to do sort of mission-oriented work, if you will. I, I really wanted to hold power to account. I really wanted to be back to the writing, which there is its own type of writing in television, but it's not like writing an article or even a book. I really wanted to be fired up every day and to feel like I was tackling a whole wide array of topics, which again, in television, the nature of my job was that I had a fairly narrow topic. So I did all that for my own enjoyment, but also because I wanted to show my kids what mom being like really fired up for work and being mission oriented at work looked like. And I felt like that would happen if I did that job. And it has, and I'm really happy to say that. And when I have an article in the paper, I bring in the paper and I show it to them and I say, hey, look, it's mom. And I got a story on the front page or a story on the business page. And they're excited and I'm excited. And that feels good because the reality is like the vast majority of us have to work for a living. And if we're going to work for a living, it's a privilege to be able to do something that we enjoy and our kids can see the enjoyment and the value of work beyond just a paycheck. An amazing uh, parent philosophy. If all parents had it, it would change the way society worked. If we kind of zoom out and we look at your 20 years of experience in journalism, can you talk about kind of how you stayed organized and how you balanced uh, all of that being an active journalist with uh, your family life? One thing for me is, and whenever I talk to people that are, you know, starting out in my field or at an earlier stage in my field, and they're wondering if they should take this job or that job or wondering how to get get started or should they accept a promotion or, you know, these kind of these fairly immediate types of decisions. I always say to them, what's the five-year plan? And if they don't have a five-year plan, I tell them to make one because it's really hard. It's like I was saying with the mapping out of the book or any piece of writing, really. If you don't know where you're sort of headed toward, what your objective is, it's really hard to make the next interim decision. So I've always, mostly always had a five-year plan as well as kind of a long bucket list. And I keep adding to the bucket list when I'm fortunate enough to be able to cross something off. So that was always sort of in my mind as I was making decisions about jobs and things like childcare and how much of it we were going to want or need or, you know, how close to live to the office and looking at the trade-offs of that. Like, would we have enough space if we still lived in the city? But, you know, if we move out to the suburbs, like, do I spend an extra 15 or 30 minutes commuting and then that's less time to work and less time with my kids? So like that professional plan was always part of my calculus. But beyond that, you can't really plan very easily, especially with kids. I mean, it's just, it's very day to day. When I had infants, so much of it is, did I have a good night's sleep? Did they have a good night's sleep? Am I waking up this morning and feeling like I can function reasonably well at the office? And did everyone get the food they need? Do we literally like, do we have paper towels and toilet paper in the house? Because maybe we have a babysitter coming in who needs those tools and it's not acceptable for me to just leave the house in disarray with no paper products because it's not just me that has to deal with that. So it's very day to day, but then when the kids get older, it's one of them sick and they need a parent today to be home or is one of them going through something at school and they need some extra time rather than me, you know, pulling a 10 hour or 12 hour day at the office, my husband and I sort of balancing responsibilities and things like that. I mean, I really, really enjoy what I do and I really, really enjoy being a parent, but I think the kids need to know that they're number one period and whatever happens job wise, 
mom does have to work for a living and mom is lucky enough to have a job she loves, but they're number one. And just so that there's no doubt about that. And they do get on my case many times for being at the office or being off on my laptop somewhere at the house. And I just try to remind them I really like what I do and I feel it has value. And I hope that they someday will also enjoy what they do and find something that they feel has value. So there's an element of that that's necessary. But when they really need me, I'm going to drop everything. And they're the most important thing. So, you know, the logistics are such a huge battle and it really is hard. And, you know, I've talked to many other moms and dads in in my workplace and we all have a version of it that's hard. And, you know, some people have aging parents themselves. And so there's that added layer, or maybe they have a special needs child, or maybe they have financial challenges that are really hard. So everybody's got their own thing. I've been really lucky, but I feel like it's just, it's having sort of the longer range plans, but it's also just being humble when you wake up in the morning and saying, today's the day where anything could happen, you know? On the good side, you know, my kids might have a great day at school. I might have an exciting day at work. And, you know, we'll all have stories to tell each other tonight at dinner. On the bad side, somebody could get sick or break a bone or have a problem at school. Or, you know, mom could get tied up in something and have to hop on an airplane and go somewhere and not be home for three days. Or who knows? But hopefully to have a foundation of closeness in the family and a knowledge for the kids that we're here for them and they're the priority so that they have that foundational sense of security. And when things go wrong, they know we're here, but they also have their own internal resources that come from self-confidence and kind of a stable base. With uh, regards to this five-year plan that you kind of talked about and how you push or tell other people to follow that, how do you kind of follow your own five-year plan and make sure, because like you said, life does change on a day-to-day basis. Kind of, How do you make sure that you get to that point? So I think it's stepping back from time to time and saying, okay, where am I at? I'm a reporter or I'm an editor. I mean, obviously my examples are coming from sort of the newspaper field. What am I covering? Am I a metro reporter? Am I a business reporter? Which is the case with me. Am I covering politics? Am I doing investigations? You know, where am I at and how long have I been doing it? And do I enjoy this So much that, you know, the question is not when do I get out of this particular role and take on a new role? But the question is, all right, what are my goals for things I want to cover, stories I want to write? Do I have a certain topic that I want to tackle? And I have a what we call a whip list, a work in progress list that I want to kind of work through over the course of six months or a year or even two to three years? Or do I want to change it up? And, you know, my dream is to cover City Hall. So, you know, I'm going to assess, have I, have I been in this beat for long enough that, you know, I feel like I've done a a good job and it's reasonable to think about moving on to the next thing. And then having the meetings that would let you get to know the people that run that department and see if they're interested in, in you and pursuing that from there. I feel like whenever you're in a large organization, just having relationships sort of all the way around the organization is wonderful. And one example of that is, I started on a certain day in January of 2017. And in my group, there was, and actually it's, I'm just smiling as I think about it. Some of us have sort of changed roles at the time, but there was a woman who had been hired to really work at a senior level on our visual journalism. There was a woman who had been hired onto the social media team. There was a guy who was a foreign correspondent who was going to be in the Middle East. There was a guy who was on like our digital transition team. There was a guy who was covering culture and also some politics. So a bunch of us that day that all started on the same day and I've sort of arranged a reunion 
for us every year or so to just have coffee and talk about what we're doing and how we're feeling about the organization as a whole. And that is like so wonderful because I think in an organization, it's possible to be so siloed and not have friends in other places and not find out about other opportunities. As it happens, I don't really have any of those particular skill sets with the possible exception of the the other guy who's a reporter and works on the culture desk. So it's not as though I would call one of those people and say, hey, can I be hired onto your team? Because I don't have that ex- that relevant experience. But it just makes it a smaller and more intimate workplace in order to have those friends. I also just think it's important when you're traveling, if you work for a nationwide or a global organization to kind of stop at the office where you are and maybe say hello or have lunch with people there or have a coffee with, you know, the bureau chief and just get to know them and say, hey, you know, I've enjoyed collaborating with you in the past, or perhaps I hope to collaborate with you in the future. Please let me know, you know, if I can ever be of help. I mean, again, it's just knowing that you're part of a big organization, but you can make it smaller by like reaching across the aisle or, you know, the country or the world to other people. And I don't know. I mean, that sense of collegiality, it makes it a nicer place to be and also helps you learn about and pursue future opportunities, depending on what that is. So I think that's important. And I always treat a favor or, you know, an even just a simple email from a colleague with a small question to be, you know, if not the top priority, just as much of a priority as, you know, other things I'm doing that day. I feel like that's a pretty good foundation of who you are today. So let's kind of take a jump back in time, back to your childhood. So you were born in Washington, D.C. in 1975. Can you tell us what life was like in your home? Yeah. So I was an only child. My parents were not Washingtonians. My dad was from Wilmington, Delaware, and my mom was from Northwest Indiana. My parents had been in the Peace Corps. And I would say, and this was in the early years that the Peace Corps started. It was in the early, I guess, mid-60s. So they were sort of part of a a very early batch of volunteers. And the Peace Corps at the time was run by Sergeant Shriver. And I would say this was like the defining experience of their lives. I mean, I would be hearing about it for years to come. My mom was in Colombia, South America. My dad was in Thailand. They both had to learn foreign languages. You know, my mom remained bilingual, you know, for the rest of her life. She's, I mean, she's still alive today. She still speaks Spanish. My dad had less opportunity to practice Thai when he got back, but stuck with some of the Thai language he had learned. And they both felt so inspired and so rewarded by that experience that they came back and they worked for Peace Corps headquarters in Washington. And that's where they met. So I always had a really great environment at home in general, but also in terms of having friends from foreign countries come. There was often Spanish spoken in my home by like colleagues or friends of my mom's you know, they were very interested in politics. They were interested in the world. You know, we didn't have the budget to travel a lot when I was a kid. I think, I think my first trip abroad, I was 12 or 13 and we went to the UK with some extended family. And shortly after that, we went and visited Ireland where my dad's family had come from in the 19th century. And that was really exciting. But I just heard about all these exciting far-flung places and My mom had a little bit of journalism background. She didn't really end up doing that for a living. She was she was in communications at nonprofits. And one interesting job she had was running communications for Conservation International for a number of years. And every six months or so, she would travel to the rainforest, primarily at that time in Latin America. Although I know they had programs in New Guinea and like Madagascar. I don't think she ever went to New Guinea, but 
she did go to Madagascar, as I recall. But anyway, this sort of sense of worldliness was paramount in my home, as was the love of like journalism and reading in general. I remember my parents like opening up the Washington Post and sort of reading it aloud for what felt like hours <laughs> on a Saturday or a Sunday, you know, reading things aloud to each other, sipping coffee. You know, this was kind of like the post-Watergate era in Washington, and they just thought that journalists were rock stars. So I guess it was sort of an intellectual home. You know, they both worked sort of long hours, so I had to do my own thing. And as soon as I was old enough to like not have a babysitter, I would do a lot of clubs at school. I was interested in music. I mean, I can get into more of this depending on what you want to hear. But, you know, I was in the Glee Club. I was in the acapella singing group. I took voice lessons at one point. I took piano lessons. I was in the government club. I always worked on the school newspaper. I ended up being the news editor of the school newspaper. So I did these clubs and activities. And it was almost like we would reconvene at home at, you know, whatever time, like 6.30 or 7 with my backpack and their briefcases and we would like talk about the day. <laughs> and I think this is a phenomenon with only children sometimes is that they sort of end up being little adults from early on because they're outnumbered by the parents. And there's just an expectation that they're going to sort of operate on the parents' hours a little bit and, you know, maybe talk about the topics that the parents want to talk about. So you end up getting that exposure perhaps from an earlier age than say my kids will, because even though we try to have serious talks with them and, you know, engage them in current events and stuff in an age appropriate way, you know, there's no doubt that we've moved from like man to zone in my household now. <laughs> and, you know, we need to sort of be ready for whatever the kids want to do and not the opposite. Would you say that your parents being in the Peace Corps kind of taught you other values other than worldliness and kind of values that you kind of spread in your life? Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think what I, what of those I absorbed as a kid. I mean, definitely a commitment to public service, which I'm sorry to say I've never formally done. I mean, I do think journalism is its own form of service, but I considered joining the Peace Corps and I didn't. I considered joining the military or even the intelligence world and thought seriously about it on a few different occasions in my life, but never did it. But yeah, that commitment to sort of giving back and to helping people who need help. You know, my mom's job in the Peace Corps was to bring audiovisual materials to remote schools around Columbia. My dad was an English teacher. So yeah, I mean, just this idea of giving back in general and, you know, in my own small way in private life, whether it's through my church or my kid's school or sort of mentoring in my own field or, you know, doing things on more of an ad hoc level, I've tried to be a volunteer and a kind of a service provider because that's something that they definitely imparted to me. Do you have any specific stories from your childhood that you feel like played a really major role in your development? So I mentioned that I was interested in music growing up and I was pretty into it. I mean, I took voice lessons like in middle school and high school. I was doing sort of recitals. We had a pretty nice like music program at my school. So I did a bunch of different singing groups and I would sing, you know, the occasional duet or quartet at the cathedral. I went to the National Cathedral School and we had a mandatory service every Friday. And so I had a couple of friends that I would often perform with. And it was it was awesome. I mean, it was just a great experience. And I did like a recital my senior year for the school's scholarship fund. And I went to this music camp every summer for two, two months, rather. So I was into it. And I thought I wanted to follow in the footsteps of some of my friends who were applying to music conservatories, even though I wasn't sure that I wanted to be all in with music. Like I really enjoyed sort of the liberal arts, if you will, as well. Like I 
I loved American history and I loved, you know, English and reading like great works. And I loved languages. I took French for many years and I really loved speaking French and reading French. So I hated to shut all that off, but I really loved the music and I loved performing. So I decided I would apply to conservatories and liberal arts schools. And I would, I would focus especially on places that had a dual degree. So like I applied to Oberlin, the college and the conservatory. I applied to the University of Michigan, same thing. I applied to Northwestern and as well as some, you know, pure play kind of liberal arts schools. And the summer before my senior year, I got mono, like right before school started. And senior year, I was laid up with mono for like literally like two months. I mean, I think there was an entire month where I didn't get out of bed. I was that sick. And another month where I was kind of like going to school for half the day but then coming home because I was so exhausted and I lost 15 pounds and I, you know, the teachers were having to sort of like tutor me one-on-one so that I wouldn't have to skip a semester. And like, it was intense. And that was the exact same time that I would have needed to be preparing for conservatory auditions and I couldn't sing. And so around the time of the auditions, which were, I want to say like January or something, I was back in lessons, but my health still wasn't great. And I remember they had to give me like steroids just even to get my throat healthy enough to sing the auditions. (laughs) So needless to say, I didn't get into any conservatories. I got into a couple of those schools that I mentioned just for the liberal arts program, but not a single conservatory. And, you know, I partly blamed it on being sick, but I also kind of took it as a sign that I wasn't meant to do this. And I think in my heart of hearts, I knew that I was never good enough, like sickness or no. I just wasn't meant to be a singer. I didn't quite have the chops. I didn't really have the confidence to compete, even on the level with some of my friends who were pursuing conservatories and did go to conservatories at the time. And I thought, all right, this is it. This means I'm supposed to be a journalist, which was always sort of my other idea. And, you know, I'd be lying if I said that wasn't disappointing. And when it really kind of hit me full force was one day I ended up going to undergraduate school at Columbia in New York. And I took voice lessons from a woman who had a studio, like an apartment with sort of a music studio in the Ansonia, which is one of these old school buildings on the Upper West Side. And she was tough. She was a rigorous teacher. And I was seeing her like every two weeks. And I think I was one of her only students that sort of wasn't like all in as a music career, you know, someone pursuing that. And she made me so nervous. One day I was like sitting in the waiting area of her studio and I had like this panic attack, you know, where you feel like you can't breathe and you almost feel like you're going to die. And I got in a taxi and left. And, you know, I maybe I called, this was like pre-cell phone. I think I called her and left a voicemail and said I was sick and I couldn't make it. I was really sorry. And I like, I think that was the day it sort of hit me that I just wasn't meant to be a singer and like I needed to stop wasting my time. And that may have been an overcorrection because I do love music and it's a great hobby. But at at the same time, like I really loved my career as a journalist and however painful it was at that time, I was, it was good for me to like clear that out of the way and focus on what I really enjoyed and could actually make impact on. So now let's kind of talk specifically about your high school years. So like you said, you attended a national cathedral school, a private girls school in DC, and you graduated in 1993. What was school like for you? You know, it was hard. It was a really tough school, I have to say. I did fine. I mean, I wasn't like, I didn't graduate cum laude or anything. I believe I was on the dean's list. I kind of want to double check that, but you know, you had to have a certain GPA to be on the dean's list. And I think I made that or, or the or it was called like the bishop's list or something. Anyway, so I did well enough. You know, I was kind of like a B plus, A minus student, but I was not 
by any means a straight A student. When I was in elementary school, my dad told me he would give me a hundred bucks if I ever got straight A's. <laughs> so this was like the mid 1980s. I don't know what the inflation adjusted hundred dollars would be, but it's probably much more today. Anyway, I never once did it. I don't, I don't think I ever once did it in my entire academic career. Maybe some semester where I was doing like just four courses instead of five at college, I got like straight A's. But so I, I, I worked really hard for the grades I got. It was a great academic environment. I mean, I just had amazing teachers. Like we were reading Tom Jones, which is almost 900 pages when I was a junior. I took AP history. I took AP economics. You know, the religion classes were awesome. The clubs were really interesting. We had this government club, which was over at St. Albans. So I was at a single sex girls school. St. Albans was the all boys school with which we shared a campus. There wasn't a ton of integration between the schools. Like when you were an upperclassman, I think they reserved like a few slots in certain classes for the boys to come over or the girls to go over to the other school. So like I took an awesome Shakespeare class at St. Albans. I was one of the like the four girls, which is really uncomfortable, by the way. I think when schools do that, it should just be more even because if you're in the minority, you feel like you're walking into a fishbowl. But in any case, we had this government club that was co-ed. It took place at St. Albans and there was a dress code. I mean, the guys had a dress code anyway, which I think was like jacket and tie. They definitely had a dress code at government club and the girls had a dress code, which I don't know whether it was like a skirt or you all said to wear a blazer or whatever, but people would show up really dressed and they would call each other by their surnames. Like Mr. Brigger, you make a very interesting point about due process and blah, 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 blah. Well, Miss Kelly... I completely disagree with your points on this matter. And I think, you know, and it was so cool because there we were in Washington and a lot of these kids' parents were in politics in some regard, or maybe they were lawyers in private practice dealing with major issues in front of, you know, major courts or in the nonprofit world dealing with important issues or, you know, all kinds of things. But that was really interesting and and a privilege. It was just privileged space, really. But, you know, it was hard. It was hard. It was not just rigorous, but, you know, the social cliques were really well defined and, you know, it could be sort of hard to navigate. You know, there was just a degree of competitiveness that could feel a little intense at times. You know, the whole college application process was just, I mean, from what I hear, it's really even worse today, actually. But it felt it felt pr- pretty well intense to me at the time. There just felt like there were a lot of social politics. And and so, you know, it was not an easy place to be in those respects. But the education and the spiritual foundation to me was like an absolute privilege. What did you kind of do to get through that toughness or to break through the social cliques to kind of have your best possible experience that you could have? So I threw myself into activities. I mean, I did a whole bunch of stuff. And, you know, I certainly had my friends and I I spent my time socializing. I I feel like I sort of floated in between social groups. I mean, I kind of had my theater and music friends. I had my newspaper friends. One thing I never really did and actually regret was sports. So I didn't really have any athletic friends unless I knew them from the paper or some other way. But, you know, I was a peer leader So I did some sort of like mentoring stuff and, you know, I tried to be as involved as I could with different people. And I enjoyed that. I mean, that's still kind of what I do. I have like a range of friends. So some of that was just sort of the trying to have some social elasticity, keeping busy. You know, I had a close home environment. I mean, my parents were pretty great. They just were like, you know, if, if ever I was having like social stress at school, they would just be like, look, 
you're a good person. You've got it together. Like just keep doing what you're doing. I mean, and they, they would hold my feet to the fire if ever they felt like I was in the wrong. I mean, they were big on apologies and like knowing your own role in a problem and trying to take the high road. So it wasn't like they let me off the hook. But they definitely tried to instill in me this foundational sense of security and affirmation, which I do think is so important for people in general and for kids, especially. So that was a lot of it. You know, in the end, I sometimes wonder how life would be different if I had gone to uh, Walt Whitman, which was the public high school in Maryland, but not far from where we lived in D.C., where a lot of our friends went. It was a much bigger place, like hundreds of kids as opposed to 60 or 70 and obviously co-ed and probably much easier to get lost in the shuffle, but still like an excellent quality school. And, I, you know, I think in the end, I have learned over the years that I as a person am better off in a co-ed environment and also probably just a bigger pond. But what's so hard is you don't know at the time, you know, you don't unless you've been to different schools, you don't really know the alternative and you don't know what's going to work until you have the benefit of varied experience. So, you know, I think to my parents and to me, it was like, I'm in a really high quality, rigorous environment. I'm doing pretty well. And let's not rock the boat. So you talked about kind of that bigger pond and just being at an all-girls school. What was the effect that kind of the all-girls school in the small community had on you? You know, there was a there was a sense of intimacy. You know, you knew people pretty well. I mean, I didn't know everyone in my class really well. It was 65 or 70 people. But I knew a lot of people reasonably well. And, you know, one benefit that we had being a small school and a private school was access to teachers. And, you know, for example, I mentioned having mono and having to be like tutored one on one. I mean, one of my one of my instructors was the headmistress who taught economics and she was spending time with me one on one. I mean, I just don't think kids in a larger school or perhaps a public school environment would necessarily get that kind of attention. And I was really lucky in that regard. So those were some of the terrific opportunities. The campus was amazing. I mean, the government club met in this, like, I couldn't tell you what room it was, but it was like this incredible kind of room with like sort of traditional English Oxford type architecture. And, you know, we're all wearing these getups and, you know, the music room was terrific. And we had a really nice theater that we used on the St. Albans campus. And, you know, so all of those things were like a huge benefit of the smallness and, of course, the capital resources that the school had as a private school. So, yeah, I mean, I just think that knowing each other really well and, and the access to instructors was really a big part of it. Would you say that your instructors kind of taught you and gave you some major takeaways from high school? Any advice that you would want to give to other high school students? I had some teachers that I really loved. One of them that I just saw recently, who was my homeroom advisor and, you know, came to a book reading I did in Washington, which was so lovely. So I have like really fond memories of a number of those teachers, but I guess I don't really have a particular takeaway or, you know, specific piece of advice that I've used. I mean, I did have one teacher who kind of helped spur my interest in history and American history. And it was a class that I always enjoyed, but I didn't think I was particularly good at it. And then I ended up winning the history prize at our school and, you know, being encouraged to study it further. And I ended up being a history major at Columbia. So that was a way in which somebody sort of helped me uncover some academic skills that I had and hadn't realized it. And I guess if I'm thinking about it, like my most recent book is, if nothing else, like an attempt to be a second draft of history, you know, the first draft being 
what actually played out in real time last year with the Kavanaugh confirmation. So there was a love and a passion for that. And, you know, some other, some other fields and skills and works of art and literature that I discovered with the help of really compassionate, caring educators. But gosh, I can't really remember life advice that I took with me. I got much more of that, like, for example, being on the crew team in college, or even just learning from my peers or my early mentors in journalism. I mean, I feel like sort of day to day, the methods and words to live by were much, there were many more of them in my first year as a professional or my first year on a team sport than they were like sort of overall in the high school experience, if that makes any sense. Yeah, of course. Can you all talk about those kind of pieces of life advice that you got in your first years of your professional career or kind of from your crew team at Columbia? Yeah, so the crew team, so Columbia's division one, but at the time we were sort of the bottom of the division. <laughs> and like, I mean, I, I say this in a humble way because it was only in that environment that I was able to walk on to the crew team with no experience. And I think also at the time, a lot of a lot of kids did not have like a crew program at their schools because it's expensive and you know, not everyone goes to high school near a body of water and so on. So I walked onto the crew team and the workouts were so rigorous, like right off the bat. I mean, I remember like day four or five of the first week, I could hardly walk down a set of stairs. But, you know, there was something about just the showing up and working through pain that was an incredible life lesson for me that I think a lot of kids probably pick up as early as elementary school or middle school if they're on these sports teams. So I was sort of a late adopter, but like, you know, honestly, just having this coach like yell at us and insist that we keep going and standing in his launch, like talking on a megaphone while we're like pulling these oars and like pulling our brains out, <laughs> just be like, you guys aren't working hard. You know, what do you think? This is just like, this is a party. This is a joke. You guys need to pull harder. Every stroke counts. Get in the zone. Don't be lazy. Don't blow it off. Like every single stroke counts. And, you know, just showing up every day, even if you're tired, even if you don't feel like it. Some of my best sprint times came on a day where I showed up and was feeling terrible. Anyway, just showing up every day, kind of pushing through bad feelings, whether they be physical or mental, like visualizing an outcome. Like I would actually listen to tapes of coxswains on like winning teams like coaching the boat through like a seven or eight minute sprint and visualize it. I mean, I use that later in marathon running. I've used it in anything that feels sort of mentally and physically arduous that I need to finish. I mean, I've used it through pregnancy and childbirth. You know, it's just the resilience and the tenacity and the knowing that you can accomplish something if you put in the work and you just don't let your don't let your sort of doubts and your skepticism cause you to fail. That is something that's been like huge for me. But it's it's also not like you can just show up at the marathon and run it that day without like failing or having a serious health event, right? I mean, it is it is the day in and day out. I mean, it's kind of like I was saying about the reporting and the writing process. It's like, you know, the, t- the two times I've run a marathon, I've, I've used a book and, you know, it's it's like four, I think it's four runs a week and the long run is on the weekend. And then, you know, there are two shorter ones and one medium sized one and it's not missing them, you know, and it's making sure that you're eating right and you're hydrating and you're sleeping and hopefully you're cross training and you're doing some kind of yoga or something to make sure you're stretched out. And, but it's like, if you do the work, you absolutely can run that marathon and just kind of knowing that. So 
So that's one. And then I'm just trying to think of lessons from that first year as a professional. Like I worked at this Metro newspaper in New York called The Observer. We had this terrific editor. His name was Peter Kaplan. He's deceased now, but he was he was great. And, you know, just just again with tenacity and, you know, I mean, I remember stories where I made scores of phone calls, maybe a hundred phone calls for stories that ultimately were not of like that much import, maybe didn't warrant that level of research. But just knowing that that the answers or the realities were discoverable with enough research and finding out in the end that that was true. You know, I once had a boss at CNBC who told me half of management or three quarters of management is just following up. And so many people don't follow up. It's like you initiate something, you have a conversation about a project or a story or, you know, an initiative of any sort, or even just a lunch meeting with someone who could lead to, you know, future business for you or future collaborations. And then so many people just don't send the second email or the third email, or they don't make the phone call, or they don't set the date, or if the date gets canceled, they don't reset the date. I mean, that is something that I'm just not shy about. I mean, if it's important, I'll call over and over again. Like if if it were a social matter, I would almost be embarrassed the number of times that I've called people professionally like on certain occasions, but you know, some of them seem to welcome it. I mean, they consider it to be like evidence of, of your interest level in talking to them and getting the story right. And while fortunately not everyone makes you work that hard because there's not enough time in the day to call people, you know, whatever it is, five or seven times, but you know, those that you really need to talk to and you do end up doing it, sometimes it's what's required. Good lessons to live by, I think. Hopefully. Now, just zooming out all the way, do you have any other, any major failures in your life or any major turning points that you think important to discuss or that you kind of learned something from? You know, my second book was called The Secret Club That Runs the World, and it was about commodity trading. And I looked at it from a bunch of different perspectives, hedge funds, banks. I looked at this company called Glencore, which is like a huge international commodity trader. I looked at it from the perspective of a guy that hedged the fuel expenses at Delta Airlines. I looked at it from the perspective of regulators. You know, I did that book. It was my second book. And my first one had been pretty successful. It was My first one was about the financial crisis and the failure of Bear Stearns. And the first book happened almost sort of spontaneously. Like I had written a three-part series for the Wall Street Journal about Bear Stearns and a publisher came to me and said, why don't we do this? And kind of told me how to do it and how to lay it out. And I did it and it was a bestseller and you know, it was hard, but manageable. And I thought, wow, this is great. I love writing books. You know, I'm going to do this commodities book. And this is four or five years later. I want to do this because it's interesting and it's a powerful group of people and they, they have influence over the way that these goods, whether they be oil or corn or, you know, cobalt or jet fuel, you know, the, the way that they're moved around the world and the way that they're priced and so on. And like, this is important to all of us. And, you know, it's a story worth telling. And I didn't really flesh out the proposal very well. I mean, I think the proposal was like two pages. And, you know, I had this publisher who has actually been my publisher for all three books and has been very good to me. But, you know, they had a certain degree of faith in me that this was going to be a successful thing. And, you know, it was really hard to do. And it was really hard to do because I had not proposed it like thoroughly enough. I had not written the 10 or the 20 pages. I had not done the research at the front end that would allow me to like really see the roadmap and see how it needed to be written. And in the end, you know, I did a lot of reporting for the book and I I actually had to look at it the other day because I was going to call somebody that I had written about in it and wanted to refresh my memory on what I had said. 
And, you know, I think it's I think it's a perfectly well-reported, well-written, interesting book. But like it just was not very commercially successful. And although that's not like necessarily the only reason you write the book and, it, it, you know, a lot of great books don't sell. Like, I just thought there was a certain miscalculation in writing about something that is not necessarily of mainstream interest and without really thinking it through ahead of time and sort of knowing what you hope to achieve and what readers you hope to find and what you want to tell them. So I just ended up feeling like I need to be a little more like thoughtful about the topics I'm tackling and who I'm writing for, like a lot of people or just a few people. And, you know, people of a certain age or all ages, you know, and like just women. I mean, not that anybody can't pick up a book, but like, are you are you targeting, you know, sort of a, a, a female demographic or could this be for anyone? And, you know, not every book is for everyone, but I mean, I feel like that was something I learned from. And I knew that the next thing I did, I wanted to be something that was potentially relevant and important to a much larger group of people and with more urgent questions to be answered that people were really asking and not just because I told them they should be asking them, if that makes sense. And that's, I think, why the Kavanaugh book, which was the next one I did, was a totally different animal and about a national issue and something that I was left wondering about. And so was everyone that I knew and something where I thought that I could bring my own knowledge and experience to the project in a meaningful way. And that my colleague who was my co-author and I had really rigorously workshopped ahead of time and written a proposal and talked to our publisher sort of at great length about how we were going to do it and, you know, what our hopes were and like how best to make it relevant for everyone. And I, I think that's something that that you need to do with a major project. I don't think you just do it because it's intellectually compelling to you and a few people or because you think there's like a mystery there that needs to be solved. I mean, those aren't like bad things in and of themselves, but like you, you really want to have impact. You know, life is short and we can only do so many things. And I think if you're going to spend the kind of time that a book requires, you should be really thoughtful and sort of big tent about it. Okay, I just want to go back to what you said at the beginning where you talked about those two points that you have as a parent. So can you talk just a little bit more about uh, why you share those two points to your kids? Yeah, so I was never very good at math. And at NCS, we only were required to take three years of math in high school. So because I was just okay at it and because there was only a three-year requirement, I only took three years. And I left off at a point where I had never taken an intro calc, let alone a pre-calc course. And that was fine with me because I was interested in either a music career or maybe something in liberal arts, and I never was going to need math. That was my rationale. So I go to college, and we have a core curriculum, and there are a bunch of different requirements, and I took microeconomics. And we had this incredible professor, and I was absolutely fascinated by the material. And I got like a C. And I think one of the reasons was I really struggled with the math because I had never taken any sort of calculus and I didn't know how to derive. And it was really a battle for me. Like I had to get help doing my homework and, you know, workshop hours with the TA and everything else. And even so I got a C. And I actually, even if I had been willing to take mediocre grades and engage in that kind of struggle, I was not even eligible for other economics courses because I didn't have the math background. And when I went to look 
Columbia didn't offer, they didn't offer an intro Cal class. They like, I literally didn't even have the prerequisites to take the most starting level calculus that Columbia offered. So there was this whole chain of events that led me to really regret not taking a fourth year of math. And what did I do for, you know, uh, the vast majority of my career up to now? I mean, I worked at a Metro paper for a couple of years and I covered the film industry for two years. Although even there, I was at the Wall Street Journal and it was all about the business models of these film studios. I've covered, you know, companies and not economics per se. I mean, I've actually written a number of stories about the Fed, although I've never covered the Fed or monetary policy as a beat. But I've covered banks for literally like years and years. I've covered stock markets. I've covered trading. I've covered hedge funds. I've covered companies. And I I only took like one microeconomics course and can't derive. So I just think we never know what we're going to want to do for a living. We never know what skill set we're going to need. And if we have the opportunity to go to great schools and we have the opportunity to take four years of math, we should do it. You know, my kids go to a school where they are taught another language from very early on. So they're bilingual. And, you know, my husband is also in journalism and he's kind of a liberal arts guy as well. And I think there's a temptation to be like, well, you know, we're liberal arts people. We're sort of English major types. You know, we, we're writers. We, we're into languages. We don't need math. But that's just wrong because, like I said, you know, you never know what you're going to want to do for a living or even in college. And, you know, my one daughter is, you know, right now she's into ballet and drawing and language. But she's also interested in, you know, as kids sometimes are, in in being like an astronaut. (laughs) And it's like, all right, well, you know what that's going to be, sweetie? That's going to be like rigorous math and science and probably a pretty strong level of athleticism and fitness. Now, who knows if she'll go forward with that? But I don't want any, to the extent I can prevent it, like I don't want any door to be closed to her. And certainly not because of like the academic laziness that I had. (laughs) So that's a very long answer, but there you go. For the time being, take all the options you can so that eventually we narrow it down. (laughs) Yes. Well, well, I I especially think with something as core as math, and I also think foreign languages are really valuable. And then do you want to talk about the team sport? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I probably don't have anything all that unique to say about it, but just in my opinion, like it's, it's so great for team building and, you know, making friends. And it's sort of a built-in social network in high school, which is like notoriously universally, you know, a socially challenging experience for everyone. And, you know, on a team sport, especially one where you're doing a little bit of travel, even if it's just, you know, local, you're on the bus for a certain period of time. You know, you're, you're hanging out with your teammates and you're forced to spend time together and work through differences on the field and off. And, you know, I also think like until I took a team sport, because I had never been into sports and all I did was the most basic requirements, whether that was a dance class or indoor volleyball and I wasn't very good at it or whatever it was, like I literally didn't know how to run a mile. I mean, I guess anybody can just go run a mile, but like what the technique was of jogging and how to breathe and, you know, how to sort of be mentally prepared for that kind of distance and Whatever. I mean, I I didn't know how to do that. I didn't know how to do a weight circuit. I didn't know how to lift weights properly or safely. Like I just didn't have any of those skills. And when I was on the crew team, we worked out six days a week, the practice, and I'm including like drive time and like, you know, getting the equipment on and off the water. So it wasn't like three hours of, you know, athletics, but you know, it was a three hour time chunk and it was 90 minutes of athletics probably 
And then we would often go to the gym and lift or do things later. And, you know, once in a while, the coach would like drop us off. Our boats were up, you know, on 214th Street and Columbia's down at 125th. Once in a while, the coach would drop us off like in Washington Heights and be like, just run home or, or run downtown for that matter, you know, and just to have the baseline of fitness to be able to do that. So I think socially and physically, it's so important. And if I had not been on that crew team, I would never have run a marathon. You know, I, I would never have taken up yoga or, you know, any of the kind of physical activities that have been so huge for my own health and well-being for all these years as an adult. So I just think it's a great experience that people should have. Okay. Well, Kate, thank you for making it today. This has been uh, episode four with Will Brigger. Please check out our website and look at our other podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or YouTube. Thanks for listening. On the next episode of One Hour Intern, I learn from world-renowned Genentech oncologist and melanoma patient, the toughest woman I've ever known, Dr. Ellie Gardino. I think at the end of the day, you want to just find people that are supportive and caring and may have an interest that you have and ask them to, to mentor you. That's, that's the advice I would give. And never be shy. It's easy to say, but if you just say, what have I got to lose? What have you got to lose? Thank you for listening to One Hour Intern. I hope that you explore more of our episodes. Follow us at One Hour Intern. The one is spelled using the number one. And if you enjoyed, please rate, follow, and subscribe. The One Hour Intern is produced, hosted, and written by me, Will Brigger. My co-producers are The Blue and Studio Pod. Till next time, thanks. Thanks.